you're listening to We Are History. I'm Angela Barnes. And I'm John O'Farrell. Yay, and we're back. And um, I'm starting off a bit upbeat here, John, because I've got a feeling this one, not well, full of lols. No, but that's the trouble with history. It's not They don't record yeah. the happy days that people strolled on the beach hand in hand, do they? That stuff they doesn't don't. make it into the books. They don't. But it is fascinating what we're talking about today. And I think what's really fascinating about it, and John, you're going to lead this one, and your surname is a bit of a hint as to why. Oh, yes. Um, Mr. John O'Farrell. Uh, we're going to be talking about the 1916 Easter Rising yes, in Dublin. Yes. Um, now, it, you know, considering the relations between uh, mainland Britain and Ireland, we are taught nothing no. about it in our schools here. Like literally nothing, no. really. No. Um, and so my family lived in Northern Ireland. My mum lived there for a long time uh, while I was at university. And after, so... I feel like for an English person, my knowledge of Irish history is better than most English people, but it's still practically nothing. Yes. This is actually a listener's request that we're doing Mm. today. Back in July, Laura Marcus tweeted us and then suggested we did Ireland 1913 to 1923, which is, we'll probably cover all of that period. She did a course on it, so she'll probably know more about this than we do, but hey-ho, let's give it a go. Um, Obviously... (laughs) Very deeply personal for me, Angela, coming from Maidenhead, as I do. (laughs) They're in County Berkshire in Maidenhead's Irish district. Um, But my dad was born in uh, Ireland and uh, his father was a policeman at this time. I might come on to how that affected the family because I think everyone everyone in Ireland has got family stories about uh, the Easter Rising, the Civil War. Um, partition. Mm. It's like uh, who was at the cavern to see the Beatles? You know, if you yeah, if you count the number people of people who were there, the yeah, everyone was there. So, <laughs> who knew Ireland had a population of yeah. seven hundred yeah. million yeah. in nineteen twenty three? But exactly. There you go. <laughs> um, so, nineteen sixteen, the Easter Rising. Uh, you know, what was it? Well, it was a proclamation of independence followed by a sort of military action. It was really a, a rather insane plan that went wrong mm. at every turn. It was tragic. It was farcical. But weirdly, even though it was done by a minority sort of small splinter group, it still ended up sort of being the event that eventually brought about Irish independence and sort of defined Ireland uh, for many generations until right up till now, really. It's the reasons mm. that Ireland is a republic and not a, a dominion, you know, like Canada became mm. or Australia became, not uh, not under the monarchy. Uh, none of that was inevitable. Uh, it was at the time thought to be just one of a string of, of failed rebellions down the centuries. Mm. Um, Absolutely. It, it Are you going to go back a bit, John? You, you do excited. like me to go back, Angela, don't you? You do like to. So... I think you'll find the first evidence of human presence in Ireland was about twelve thousand five hundred <laughs> years ago. So Ireland uh... separated out. <laughs> Ireland actually became an island before Britain did, which is why there are no snakes in Ireland. It's because yeah, the, the, the the fauna didn't get across. So, I think you'll find it. it's because St. Patrick drove them all out before getting pissed on Guinness. Oh, oh I've just checked that. my notes. You're right. History. I've checked my notes. You're right, Angela. Yes. It was St. Patrick and the Guinness. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm going to go back, Angela. 1169, the Anglo-Normans. Oh, far back. Okay. The Anglo-Normans invaded, led by Strongbow, who, who was chosen. Cider? Yeah, because he, he had the best cider, so they chose him. <laughs> and uh, he was actually the Earl of Pembroke. And that was the beginning of 800 years of British involvement in the island of Ireland. The Irish always very brutally treated. There was land seen as, you know, free land and resources for the British upper classes. There was a direct British rule around the area around Dublin. And that was right. the pale. Uh, and it was like, as in impale, there was there was a fence all the way around. And you didn't go beyond that. You never went beyond ah. the pale. 
So that's where the phrase comes from. Well, we think it might be. No one's really sure because there were other pales around other places. But um, the popular belief, at least, that might be a QI klaxon, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) the common belief is that beyond the pale comes from the fence that was around uh, the county around Dublin. In Tudor times, Elizabeth Firth and others put Protestants into Ulster. There were lots of of attempts to conquer the island before that, weren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's lots of of landings and and control of the earls and stuff. But... Mm. um, Gradually, uh, the Protestants were sort of placed in the in the north and uh, beyond. Cromwell's brutal massacres of Irish civilians still very much remembered in Ireland, if, um, mm-hmm. which justifies in itself, actually, tearing down his statue outside Parliament. If you are passing, you have this podcast's permission to pull down the statue of Cromwell. Angela said it was OK. <laughs> Is that right, Angela? <laughs> uh, yes, John. <laughs> Um, There's a lot of detail. I'm going to skip over 1798, the Wolf Tone Rebellion, failed rebellion when the French army failed to land at Bantry Bay. There's a little plaque there in Bantry. If you're ever there, there's an anchor from the French ship, uh, which is now a great place for bored teenagers to smoke. Uh, if you're ever there. So uh, check that out. Um, <laughs> the Irish, they did try and form alliances with the French, didn't they? Yes. I think during the, yes. the sort of tensions with France and England. Exactly. And being Irish Catholic, of course. The... Yeah. yeah. Um, because of that uh, 1798 rebellion, there was an act of union in 1801. That's when the, the red diagonal came into the Union Jack that we, we are now familiar with. That's the Cross of St. Mm-hmm. Patrick. Uh, William Pitt abolished the Irish Parliament. Their MPs came to Westminster. But of course... Catholics weren't allowed to vote, so that Mm. was uh, excluding most people. In 1845 uh, to 1848, the famine, the potato famine, uh, struck Ireland very hard. Eight million people there were in Ireland when it struck. Uh, A million left, a million died. And And they've still not recovered those numbers, have they? No, it's still like five million in the Republic now. Mm. Uh, the potato famine means that every year when we went on holiday, my kids had to endure me pointing out famine cottages, uh, the ruins <laughs> of old cottages to my kids and going on about it and then going to the Skibbereen Famine Museum to see. <laughs> to see uh, oh, what uh, a day out that well, is. Uh, it's got to be raining I'm, a lot if you're going to the Skibbereen Famine. No offence, Skibbereen. I'm sure it's fascinating. Yeah, it's good, actually. But- I'm not sure if I was a child, I'd particularly... No, no. You do get to see Jeremy Irons in a chunky jumper talking about it on a screen. If you want to see Jeremy (laughs) Irons in a chunky jumper, go to the Skibbereen Family Museum. Now, um, by by the time of... Catholics are allowed to vote by this point, aren't they? But only if they're... Yes. Property owners, yes. Is that so right? still a minority. Yeah. So the, of course, yeah, you yeah. know, uh, freeholders and uh, over forty shillings meant that it was still mostly the Protestant landowners of, of Dublin and Belfast and that. So yes, Gladstone uh, always hoped to solve the Irish problem, never succeeded. Charles Parnell was the great leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party. It was really the first modern political party. He whipped policy. He had discipline. He had uh, a very much organised long party lines. Whenever the uh, House of Commons was finally balanced, you would have, you know, uh, the Irish nationalists would hold the way in Parliament and so mm. Gladstone would have to try and appease them. They even had a seat in Liverpool which mm. uh, one guy held until long after Irish independence weirdly right up until wow. uh, 1929. But Parnell was disgraced when his affair came out uh, with Kitty O'Shea. Had that affair remained secret maybe a different form of Irish independence would have uh, would have prevailed. It's amazing how much of history might have been different if men had just kept it in their pants. Uh, you're right. <laughs> this was a love affair, actually. I think they ended up marrying each other. So it wasn't, you know, it, they were in love, but she was married and she was cited in a divorce with uh, Captain O'Shea. But it was a massive disgrace. So after, you know, the party fell apart, his version of uh, nationalism and independence was, was tainted with adulterism. So you supported adultery if you supported what he had stood for, wow. which is bizarre. So we enter the 20th century, Angela. Ireland has been asking for hundreds of years 
been trying for hundreds of years to be independent. It's like Mrs. Doyle and Father Ted. She said, go on, go, <laughs> go on, on, go on, go on. Let me be independent. <laughs> Give us the independence. Yes. Come on. Um, and, sorry, uh, I won't do an Irish no. accent again, listeners. I'm terribly <laughs> sorry. I don't know what I was thinking then. I can't do it. I won't do it. Still the Irish National Party is the main party there, the Irish Parliamentary Party. But in 1905, Sinn Féin was formed more as a sort of uh, an organisation rather than a political party. Very ineffective, right. lost only the only by-election it fought. The sort of independence that they had campaigned for, the Irish Parliamentary Party, was sort of being within the British Empire, the Commonwealth, being like Canada or so Australia. So like Canada or yeah, Australia. or New Zealand right. or whatever. So, so the still idea, under the crown, the but militant, with independence. militant republic complete split with Britain was, was a very minority position back then. Mm. Um, you had a thing called the Gaelic League, which was interested in the Gaelic language and Gaelic sports. Mm. And the Irish Republican Brotherhood was quite closely linked to that. And they're very important, aren't they, for the, what we're Yeah, they, they, will, they will become important as we get closer to 1916. So when the 1910 British general election was very finely balanced, in fact, two elections that year, both with the same result, very finely balanced, mm. the Irish nationalists held the balance of power. The House of Lords had had its powers... Uh, trimmed so they couldn't stop it. So it looked like mm. independence for Ireland was now on the cards. Then right. Ulster started to get very nervous. All the Protestants in the north who, the uh, who were loyalists, the orange men. This mm -hmm. card was whipped up by the Conservatives. Uh, and there was Sir Edward Carson, the leader of the Unionists. He dramatically walked out of Parliament and he started to organise paramilitaries, Ulster volunteers in 1912. These were like marching independent Private armies, really. Mm. And that, who would go on to be the UVF, right? Well, the Ulster uh, Volunteer Force, yes, or, essentially. Yes, or, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, 1912, Belfast was going, look look at us, we're cool. We just made this big shit, the Titanic here. You can't... <laughs> what could possibly go nothing, wrong? We, everything we do is great. <laughs> My dad, actually, would always mention that it was built by the Ulster Protestants. He would always like have a grudge <laughs> against... He'd say, built by, built by Ulster Protestants, you know, Titanic. Dad, it's not their fault it sank, OK? <laughs> he would hold it against them. It's like a little victory for the South. Um, so... Um, the, the Tory leader was actively encouraging mutiny in the British army. If the Ulster Protestants, you know, rebelled, the British army should take their side uh, and mm. not pull down their, their, their rising. So then the Irish nationalists start to organise into volunteers. And so the private armies on, on both sides. There's that great W.B. Yeats poem, uh, Out of Ireland We Have Come, uh, Great Hatred, Little Room. I haven't got, I can't remember mm. all of it, but it's very much this little island with all this hatred within it. A real pressure cooker situation. It was a real there, pressure cooker, it? yeah. So in 1914, yeah. Britain thought war was coming, but they thought it was going to be a civil war in Ireland. That's what everyone had their eye on. Right. Meanwhile... No one saw that other war coming over in the <laughs> Balkans. Um, yeah. So war does break out in Europe. Home rule was put on hold because, you know, that European thing will be over by Christmas. So we'll just go and... We'll just go and sort that out. So as I was saying, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, they're advocating Irish culture, you know, Irish pubs in Camden, put on a big wobbly Guinness hat on St. Patrick's Day, <laughs> um, big plastic shamrocks, all that. They're into all that. There was a reclaiming of Irish identity by uh, the Gaelic League and the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Uh, and on the other side, the UVF. Yes, well, who are, who are opposed mm. to all that. The Brotherhood had advocated the armed overthrow of British rule since they were formed uh, after the famine. But most people in Ireland, outside the Protestant enclaves, as I said, they were they're vaguely in support of home rule, but they, the idea of uh, breaking away... Civil just seemed, war wasn't... Really, yeah, yeah, didn't seem plausible, really. And also, the British army, the British Empire, that was quite big. And the idea mm. of, you know, going to war against them seemed like a bit of a... 
bit of, it feels like they might have got hurt. So. Yeah, but the UVF were were tooling up, weren't they? Oh yeah, they were. So I read they smuggled twenty five thousand rifles into Ulster in April nineteen fourteen. Yeah, I mean scary yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, they were properly like you say tooling up for war until the Great War came along and sort of put a stop to it. Yeah, this was something that was really? not the case so much in Gladstone's time. This was whipped up, mm. really, in the 20th century. Uh, Randolph Churchill particularly was like, the orange card is the one to play. That's William Ch- uh, Winston mm. Churchill's dad. He was very yeah. much whipping up the Ulster Unionists, and, as was Sir Edward Carson. So then, then the uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood had the idea of a rising, seeing England mm. at war was an opportunity for Ireland. You know, uh, this would be seen as traitorous in London and treacherous. But uh, Mm. they considered Britain to be an illegal occupying force and that this was their chance. It's part of the reason for this timing that the, you know, the British military is obviously massively depleted. Their energies in fighting a war on the Western Front. Yes. uh, um, England's misfortune is Ireland's opportunity. And also there was Mm. the hope of getting aid from Germany, a major power. They wanted them to land uh, in the River Shannon in Kerry. This is where Roger Casement comes in. That's right. Yes. Well, let me get to um, uh, the plan of it. So uh, so Patrick Pearce was the leader of uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood. He was a school teacher and a a writer and a poet translator. He became convinced of the need for symbolic bloodshed is how he saw it. So there is something. Mm. What's so interesting about and sort of heroic, really, about the 1916 Rising, was that it was knowingly suicidal, really. They knew they were going to throw themselves at the guns, probably die, but it would bring independence eventually. And it sort of... And that's what came to Sort of came really, past. It? it was like Thelma and Louise driving off the cliff, really. It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's a, this, is, this is mad, but it's sort of heroic, you know. So Easter was chosen deliberately with all its notions of martyrdom and, uh, you know, and sacrifice. So Roger Casement, yes, you just mentioned, he so he was he was a diplomat. British, he was in the British Foreign Office, wasn't yes, he? Yes, yeah. but he was he was born, you know, he was an Anglo-Irishman. He was actually very sympathetic mm. to their cause. So he mm. was uh, dispatched to the USA to meet the German ambassador to try and negotiate uh, German support. The IRB wanted a German army landing to help them, but they they managed yeah. to negotiate some weapons. Not quite enough as far as Casement was concerned. And so Patrick Pierce announced over Easter a weekend of parades and manoeuvres. So there'll be a bit of marching. <laughs> They're the Irish like a march. But the people who needed to know knew what that meant. Yeah, they go, OK, like, oh, I get it, I get it. manoeuvres was a bit of a euphemism. That's right. right. <laughs> but the Brotherhood was split over this idea. So they forged this document saying the castle document coming from Dublin Castle, the centre of the British government. They forged this document saying they were they were all going to be arrested. And so, you you know, this made the moderates go, oh, well, if we're all going to get arrested, we might as well jump in with this plan now because it's mm-hmm. our only chance. Uh, so they're all persuaded to join this crazy plan. Ian McNeil, chief of staff, you know, saw little chance of success. So he put out a counter order telling volunteers not to join. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, there's contradictory orders being issued about this secret plan. Uh, it's not starting it, well. I think the- Brotherhood by this point is made up from lots of smaller groups. Yeah, you got all sorts. So you of... had like the Owen, uh, Owen, Ian. I'm not sure y- how to pronounce Ewan, it. Ewan. Ewan. I'm going to say Ewan McNeil. Yeah, he sent out the counter demand, yes. didn't he? Because he felt that it wasn't the time. Well, he for thought the it was uprising. suicidal, and he was right. Well, and he was right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Good Friday, a disguised German ship. Uh, landed in... What was it disguised as, John? It was a pantomime horse, Angela. Brilliant. <laughs> Galloping dis- across the waves. <laughs> it was disguised as a Norwegian <laughs> ship. We were in Norway at peace, right. of course, uh, neutral, of course. Um, yes. They reached the coast of Kerry. Lovely scenery. And full of all the arms that full of all the arms. had negotiated for them. No one there to meet him, of course. 
It's like they just turned up, and this island's a very empty country, you know. And oh, I thought you said you were coming tomorrow. <laughs> you said you weren't going to do I've the done accent it again. Oh but shit! It was... I'm sorry. Never again. You're allowed Never to. Again. You're allowed to. It's all right. <laughs> um, there was no one there to meet them, but the Royal Navy knew all about it and intercepted the ship. So the captain scuttled it. So it's probably still there at the bottom sank of. It. He, he sank the ship. Yeah, with all the with mm. all the weapons on. So it's probably still there. If you're a, if you're holidaying in Kerry, get your scuba diving gear out. Go and see the sunken ship. Get yourself a gun. <laughs> uh, Roger Casement landed nearby. It wasn't going to look good for him. He was dropped off by a German U-boat. Um, U-boat's mm. very new at this point, of course. He was stripped of his knighthood. That'll learn him. Just for playing to overthrow <laughs> British rule. I mean... <laughs> so uh, picky, I British. Know. Oh, no, no, no. Can't, even, can't <laughs> even be a traitor to your own country anymore. Um, so, uh, and he would, of course, later be executed. Meanwhile, back mm. in Dublin, British leadership knew about all this. But they thought mm. they knew about this boat and they knew about uh, case. They knew about the plans for the uprising, did they? Well, they or? did, but they said, let's not do anything till Monday. It's the weekend. Right. So they're literally. Easter weekend. What are they going to do? What are they going to do over an Easter weekend holiday? That's Nothing's the whole open. point, you idiots. <laughs> <laughs> so on Easter Monday, 1,200 volunteers gathered at spots around Dublin, including the women yeah. paramilitaries of Kuman Naban. What's fascinating about this whole story is lots of women were volunteers as well. And yeah. they were trained up alongside the male volunteers, you know, in using arms and yeah. and things. And these feminists and socialists, they were there was the various groups, but I know there was the Daughters of Ireland is one of the famous ones, isn't it? Yes. That um is it Helena Maloney and uh Constance Markovitz and people like that, Maud Gone, um, yep. who was the unrequited love interest of Yeats that he wrote loads of poetry Aww. about her. Lovely, isn't it? And then um, and they all got com. themselves <laughs> tooled up and trained up. But they were they were feminists and socialists, and they like one of the th- they campaigned for school meals for poor children in Dublin and things like that. Um, yeah, you know, so they but they really got their hands dirty. Yeah, they, there's so many they? interesting characters in all of this. Um, yeah, I mean, I a lot of them get A lot of them get killed yeah. in uh, over the Easter. Spoiler alert, John. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> <laughs> but um, twelve hundred volunteers was fewer than they had been hoping for, partly because of McNeil you know, with his counter order and mm. partly because of the short notice. But anyway, Patrick Pierce And the suicidal nature of it. Yes. Probably partly. <laughs> he, he stands on the steps of the post office and he declares Ireland independent republic. And people mm. are just shopping, you know, they're just yeah. out and about for their stroll. And people are just going, who's that nutter shouting <laughs> on the steps? Is that, that's that Pierce fella. Piercey, go, go home. And, um, There's one thing I read that said that there were about 20 to 30 people heard the proclamation. It sort yeah. doesn't feel like quite the event that <laughs> no it's probably you'd have to dramatize it uh, make it a bit more mm. special but really literally passers-by were bemused they thought it was ridiculous but meanwhile across the city they were marching into areas of uh, strategic importance apparently the people armed with their old 19th century rifles and um, mm. bits of grenades and things taken from those that were in the Boer war or whatever they were uh, mm. and uh, this ragtag republican army had seized Dublin, had seized other points around the country and didn't really know quite what to do next. That might be a good time for a break when we see, oh. if, when we see if Ireland, what they do next. Yes. Whether we have so, a sing-along. Uh, <laughs> Get the boring out. The Johnny Logan comes <laughs> turns up. Um, but yes, we'll come back after this short advert and you will see how it all panned out. A quick break for some, uh, so some Barry's tea and some Tato crisps. Tato's. <laughs> I'm going to stop doing it. Wow. 
Welcome back to We Are History. We're talking about the 1916 rising. They always do that on radio programs or on TV shows, don't they? They just tell you what you've just heard. We've yeah. been talking about the 1960. I know, we were just listening. And especially as I reckon everyone listening pretty much skips through the adverts, right? So, I don't know, I don't you know. know. Uh, actually, if any uh, potential advertisers are listening, they definitely don't. They they don't. Definitely your sales to will go up I'm going enormously. to stop talking. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, uh, did I... you enjoy your Barry's tea, though? Oh, it's delicious. Uh, fantastic. Um, <laughs> I actually had relations to the 1916 Rising, Angela. And um, I also had my grandfather, who was on the baddies side, as it would now be. He was in the... Uh... Actually, no, he was away in the war. So I'll talk about that towards the end. Oh, but, right. Uh... Okay. Oh, maybe I'll talk about it now. My grandfather was... he the Ulster was... Volunteers? Or... No, he was uh, no. in the British Army. So oh, right, more people volunteered from the South than the North uh, when the Great mm. War broke out. You know, it was declared the war for little countries. Belgium has been invaded. Serbia is under attack. And so there was... mm. it sort of struck a romantic chord in Ireland. And... Uh, right. My uh, great uncle was a recruiting sergeant for the British Army and he got all his brothers involved. So my grandfather, who'd been a policeman in Galway, volunteered because he said he'd rather get shot in the front than in the back. So uh, he went off to France in 1914, was gassed in 1916, came back and um, uh, conceived my uncle, (laughs) was gassed again in 1918 and came back and conceived my dad. Um, <laughs> but uh, he went away a hero in 1914 uh, but when he came back in 1918 he was sort of a traitor it was like yeah. oh, all this stuff has happened and um, you know everyone was against the British by the time the uh, reprisals to 1916 had happened and that's mm. probably partly why I ended up moving to England and that's why um, why, I why, have this, why I have this posh accent <laughs> instead of sounding <laughs> instead of you know sounding like gay burn or something but um, um, so, yeah, I think that there's a great book I read by uh, Sebastian Barry called A Long, Long Way. And that was set in the Great War and talks about the Irish volunteers and how mm. how their world changed whilst they were away from it and how hard that was. And, for them. and the horrors that they it's not like they were away having a jolly. No, they weren't at Centre you know, Park. They thought they'd yeah. seen the horrors <laughs> yeah. of, of trench warfare. And they'd come home and be treated like a traitor. And yeah. And been. then the Civil War and all that. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah. So. Anyway, we're we're at the we're at the post office. Nineteen sixteen. Patrick Pierce April. had been elected president of the Irish Republic by six mates. And, yeah, um, I say who exactly elected? Yeah, him? And, <laughs> and, and they made him commander in chief of the army. So right. uh, around midday, the rebels seized important sites. They put up barricades in the streets. Um, and these important sites were they were like city hall. They had didn't they? Um, yes, and the, the four courts. The Jacobs. I read something really interesting. They had the Jacobs. Biscuit factory. You've got to have biscuits when you have a revolution. Well, apparently their plan was, I read somewhere, that to take over the biscuit factory so that the people that made the biscuits would make food for the volunteers. Well, also strategically. Strategic reading. But what actually happened was when they went to the factory, everyone went, there's people coming in with guns and... And left. left. <laughs> so, of course they would. So none they, of the yeah. factory workers stayed to make it, their It was a complete surprise to the people of Dublin. They didn't want they yeah. didn't want this uh, war going on in their town. I mean, the mm. Jacobs Biscuit Factory has always been the key to Dublin strategically. Cromwell knew it, you know, the Romans <laughs> knew it. It was always the Jacobs Factory. <laughs> but um, um They had the post office as well. They had the post they? office, they had um, the four courts. One of the yeah. um one of the uh, rebels had this really posh car. It was a Dion Bolton car with it was a beautiful old convertible. And he, he thought, I'm going to drive it to the rebellion. That's my pride and joy. But I'll, I'm going to drive it and park it outside the post office. And you can see pictures of it all burnt out and blown up after the rebellion. <laughs> oh, and this God. bloke was 
probably dead, I think. Another of the rebels took a tram to the rebellion and he hijacked the tram with his gun, but then insisted on paying his fare and the fare of all the other passengers on the tram. Which I well, that's think... it. You could have inconvenienced someone with a hijack. Yeah. At least cover their costs. Absolutely, that's... absolutely. <laughs> the barricades, they, they put up barricades, didn't they, in the street and, and yeah. used sort of furniture, whatever they could get their hands on to blockade the streets. And yes. I read one account that said that, that like the Dubliners were like, brilliant, free furniture. And we're just going uh, and taking tables right. and chairs but, off I know, the they were barricades. Themselves. And then some of them got shot. Some of them were killed yeah. like, by trying to dismantle the barricades. There was a shop, a sort of Madame Tussauds type place that had uh, wax effigies of Mm. uh, famous people of the day. And so to make their numbers seem greater, I think this was in the post office, they stuck the wax effigies in the windows, had them pointing (laughs) out with rifles. So when the British Army did turn up, there was King George waving his gun, (laughs) Queen Mary, Lord Kitchener, the head of the British Army, was pointing a gun back at the Irish rebels. (laughs) They did lots of things, didn't they, to to sort of seem like their ranks were... Swollen, yes. Um, because there weren't as many of them as they hoped they'd be, the volunteers. And uh, one story I heard was about a girl, um, Jenny Shanahan, her name was. Yes. And she was a teenager and she joined the volunteer forces and she trained alongside them with the other women. And um, when she was making her way from Dublin Castle, because they... they Failed to capture Dublin Castle. Uh, I've read a couple of conflicting stories about that. I I read one perspective from quite a revolutionary perspective that was like, well, they never wanted to capture it anyway. So there was never part of the plan. They they, they turned up there and the the British closed the gate and they never thought they might do that. That was like, ah, (laughs) damn, they closed the gate. They did shoot and kill a police guard there. So I think you can't really say that they never attempted to take it. Yes. Um, Apparently it was quite lightly guarded. They could have taken it if they'd thrown some military weight at it. But anyway, tell me your story. So, so anyway, this uh, Jenny Shanahan had been at Dublin Castle. She was making her way back to City Hall to the uh, to the forces there, and on her way, she encountered the British Army. And because of her youth, the British Army assumed that she'd been a captive of the Volunteer forces. Uh, they kidnapped her, and so they they sort of said to her, "Are you okay? Have they treated you all right? And how many people are there? You know, are in the City Hall." And so she played along and said they treated her really well, but there were hundreds of them right. at City Hall, which there weren't. Right. Uh, you know, but that slowed the British advance down. They were like, oh, if there's hundreds of them, we better stop right. and have a yeah. think about... Well, the, yeah, I mean, the, the British response on the day was very chaotic. They were completely caught mm. on the hop and uh, mm. their, their response was uncoordinated. They thought, let's send out the cavalry and they just rode by the post office and got shot and four of them were killed. Mm. I don't know what was going on at the post office if they closed the post office. If, you know, were people still turning up for stamps? Trying to get know. their stamps. I've got this parcel. <laughs> yeah. I've, got this Amazon, I've got this Amazon delivery. Trying to get my pension. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but martial law was not declared till the Tuesday. But the things that the Irish army hadn't done was take the telephone exchange. So the government still Mm. had control of communications. They hadn't taken either of Dublin's ports or railway stations. Mm. And so uh, the British could bring in reinforcements. They were able to get troops then. Yeah, so they got them down from Belfast. and So by the end of the week, there were 16,000 British troops in Dublin with machine guns and artillery. And even a a ship came sailing up the Liffey and started shelling Mm. Dublin. Now, the the rebels had never thought that the British would bomb the second city of the empire. Um, but then they, they, the British never and, thought that they would rebel like this. So. And also the British were using pretty heavy artillery, right? Yes. They were using these 18-pound shells yeah. and things because they were using the same artillery they were using for trench warfare. Absolutely. All this time, of course, they were, they were holding out in the uh, post office for the whole week, eating these Jacob's biscuits they got hold of mm. and 
and, and rumours flying, oh, the German army has landed or, you know, the way, help is coming. And of course, this is all uh, rumour and, and uh, supposition and was never going to happen. Um, mm. until, so they basically just stayed there until they ran out of ammunition or... Um, I think they... I read somewhere that they were supposed to... Or they wanted to hold position. They knew they were fucked, basically. Yes. But, but they wanted to hold position. I think it was for something like six days was the international criteria to meet a declaration of independence or oh, something. Oh, right. For, okay, um, I didn't know So that. They, they had this goal of six yes. days, I think it was, to, to hold the position and yes. then they could surrender and have their point made internationally. Yes. I mean, they had not won over the Dublin population at this point. Uh, uh, no. People were not pleased to see their uh, city blown to pieces. And um, after six days and, and shooting in various buildings, a lot of innocent civilians have been killed, mostly by the British Army, actually, including a famous pacifist, which would later do uh, the British cause great damage. The leader of the Dublin Brigade had been shot in the ankle, uh, James Connolly. Uh, but eventually, by the Saturday, it was clear their position was hopeless. And so surrender was issued. Patrick Pierce gave the order to surrender. It's quite an interesting um, story about the surrender. There's a famous surrender photograph. So um, Patrick Pierce, yes. the leader, uh, he surrendered. But what happened at first? It was Elizabeth O'Farrell. Who, Elizabeth who, she, Angela? O'Farrell, any relation? Oh, John? I probably, probably <laughs> my great aunt. She'd been one of the, the women uh, there. And she had nursed, she wasn't actually a nurse at this point, she later trained as a midwife, but she had nursed um, James Connolly when he'd been shot in the ankle. Yes. And she was asked to give the surrender. So she was wearing a Red Cross yes. armband and carrying a white flag. And she walked out to the British barricade um, with the note of surrender. The British barricade initially rejected the surrender, they wanted Pierce. Right. So they accompanied her back to where Pierce was and brought him out as well. And there's a famous photograph. So you had General Lowe was the British general. He'd taken over from Maxwell by this point. And he um, sort of wanted to get one up, really, on Maxwell, his predecessor. So he decided that he wanted a photograph of the surrender. OK. And it was him and his son was uh, in the photograph as well. So it's quite a famous photograph. You can Google it and find it, the surrender picture. And in the photograph, you see General Lowe and his son, who is John Lowe, who later changed his name to John Loder, the Hollywood film star he was, who married Hedda Gabler. Wow. Yeah, not Hedda Gabler, Hedy Lamarr. Hedy Lamarr, I was going to say, Hedda Gabler is <laughs> Hedda a fictional is a character. Fictional character. <laughs> yeah. um, married Hedy Lamarr, sorry. Wow. Um, yeah, so he's there, there in the photograph. And... Also in the photograph is Elizabeth O'Farrell. Now, she stood next to Pierce. Pierce is nearest the camera. Yeah. And but, So all you can see of Elizabeth O'Farrell in the photograph is her petticoats and her boots. That's right? the women in history. That's women in on. history. And the newspapers erased her completely. They took out the... Oh. Uh, and actually, a lot of the revolutionary history of Ireland, the women were completely erased, even though they were there. It's yeah. only been later on, really, that their stories have been it's also, told. It's us O'Farrells. We're always written out of history, the O'Farrells. Yeah, that's it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're just as much a victim of... I'm a vi I feel a victim here as, you know, as my brethren. Of course you are. <laughs> um, but I just think that's a really interesting... Story right. that she was there in that in that yeah absolutely and, so there, uh, there there had been minor uprisings elsewhere in the country which all sort of petered out uh, with the confusions mm -hmm. surrounding the counter demanding orders and nearly five hundred people died over half of civilians mm -hmm. Cork Belfast uh, Wicklow I think 
Mm-hmm. Uh, one interesting little side note, without this crisis having blown up, uh, British politics in World War One might have taken a very different turn because mm. uh, Lloyd George was supposed to go and visit Russia with Lord Kitchener on a, on a mm-hmm. boat, uh, but he had to stay behind because this crisis blew up. And then so Kitchener's he... boat got hit by a torpedo and sunk uh, mm. and Kitchener died. And Lloyd George survived to lead the First World War and become Prime Minister of Britain and the last. And the man who would eventually, you know, sort out the partition of Ireland. But uh, without the rising... He should have been on that boat. He should have been on that boat. And they all... Kitchener was actually a really annoying, useless piece of uh, work. And uh, Mm. secretly... Was it an accident, John? Well, that's what... At the time, it was all internet conspiracy (laughs) theories. It was all people on (laughs) blogs going, they done him in. Yeah. It was a Brit They never recovered his body, did they? No. You know. No. So that was, um, yeah, conspiracies were flying around. So anyway, then there were mass arrests. After the uh, surrender, there were mass arrests of nationalists all over Ireland, involved or mm-hmm. not, any sort of nationalist. Uh, and the court-martial, do you know who presided over the court-martial? Oh, uh, it was not Edmund Blackadder. No, it was Charles Blackadder. <laughs> Charles Blackadder. This family Brilliant. pops up a lot in history. You'll, you may have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> um, all the uh, signatories of the Proclamation of Independence were executed by firing squad. In the first week so that was of May, what seven of them had Patrick Pierce uh, Connolly was shot tied in a chair. If you um, his ankle was already shattered, yes, wasn't it, from being shot. Now, yeah. uh, and then they were going to get around to shooting Eamon de Valera, but then they went, Oh, hang on, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, he's American, he's an American citizen. We need those guys to come in the first world war and join us. They didn't call it the first world war then, they were much more optimistic. Um, <laughs> they need we need America to join the war, let's not kill the Irish bloke. Uh, let's put him to one mm. side, lock him up in prison. And he ended up mm. sort of almost accidentally being the last survivor of uh, of the central conspiracy in 1916. And that's where he ended up being the sort of founding father of the nation, really, de Valera. Mm. The executions weren't all in one day. They were like, you know, the 3rd of May, the 4th of May, the 5th of May. And it just, opinion, Irish opinion just became appalled at these daily deaths. And even... Um, you know, ultra-unionist Sir Edward Carson begged the British government to stop shooting these people. Well, he could see the opinion turning, couldn't he? Yeah, he could see, yeah. Cause, because, like the, you say, even at the time of the rising, but, a public opinion wasn't on their side no, in Ireland. I mean, there were, it, it was divided. It was complex, of course, and there were many. Yeah. There were many, but they were booed as they were led out of the building of the GPO. They were booed by uh, people mm. in the street who'd seen their city, you know, uh, shattered. Opinions started to shift behind hardline republicanism as opposed to sort of home rule. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the the Easter Rising had created a nation of converts. What they wanted to happen, happened. The bloodshed yeah. happened. It was a suicidal mission, but it changed yeah. public opinion to their cause. So uh, there was a conscription crisis in uh, April 1918. They tried to enforce conscription in Ireland, and that turned a lot of people... British Army. Yeah. Funnily enough, they didn't like that. They didn't like that after they'd sort of uh, been no. shooting all their Republican leaders. And then uh, when the war was over, there was an election in December 1918. Sinn Féin won a landslide victory. If you look at the map of Ireland, it's, it's all dark green. And then there's all the little unionist seats up in uh, what we'd now recognise as Northern Ireland, which, of course, didn't exist back then. And, of course, this is when uh, Countess Markovitz, ah. Constance Markovitz, became the first woman MP. People often think it was... Um, no, you see, I'm going to be the bore yeah. at the quiz now. She yeah, wasn't the yeah. first MP. No, no, that is, that's the right answer. Well, you yeah, have to say, you always was... have to word who was the first MP to take her seat. seat and then, then, you, then right. you get Nancy Astor. But it's worth, yeah. va- if you're setting the pub quiz, it's worth setting this sort of deliberately vague. Mm. So all the pedants can go, no, actually, it's Constance Markovitz is the first woman yeah. MP. Well, she obviously, she didn't take her seat because 
obviously Sinn Féin MPs yeah. don't take their seat in Westminster. Um, yeah. And also, she did happen to be in Holloway Prison at the time. Would you, would that's always, a, quite that's always a anyway. Yeah. They met in Dublin, the Sinn Féin uh, MPs, all 80-something mm-hmm. of them, and um, they declared independence for the whole island of Ireland. Of course, the Republic wasn't recognised by other countries. Um, British forces there were now considered uh, an invading force. Around this time, we have the origins of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. This is the sort of mm-hmm. remnants of the uprising. Uh, it wasn't really under the control of Irish MPs or the would-be government. And it started yeah. to and attack... Paramilitary at that yeah, point. Yeah, it was para- paramilitary. Still, yeah. And it started to attack yeah. British soldiers, uh, British mm-hmm. symbols. So mm-hmm. the British responded with a black and tans. Yes. Now, these are infamous now, in Ireland. My dad used to talk about They were indeed. These. I had no idea what the black and tans were until I was a student nurse and I lived with lots of Irish nursing students. And it was that's when I first heard the phrase. And... Of course, they were lots of British soldiers that were recruited into the so special constabulary. Irish police. Yeah, they were like yeah. A, basically bouncers, um, failed security guards. Well, a lot of them were soldiers back from the war. Yeah, um, unemployed soldiers. But they unemployed were unemployed soldiers. But they were encouraged to be as thuggish as they wanted to be, and they they mm. sort of basically ran riots, shooting whoever they wanted. They set fire to that. They sort of basically burned all of the central court. And they were called black and tans because they had the it was a dark green uniform, but it looked black of um, the uh, Royal Irish Constabulary, but also sort of made up with bits of leather. old military uniform yeah. khaki. Yes. So that's why they were yes. the black and tans. That's right. And um, that, that that phrase is, you know, uh, Ben and Jerry's tried to launch an ice cream called black and tan and it caused an uproar. Did they? Yeah, in 2006. And nobody, they, they thought we'd heard, they'd heard this phrase black and tan. Let's call it our ice cream black and meant. tan. Yeah. So in so some parts of the world, you can get a Guinness and bitter, and some people will call that a black and tan, but never ask for that in Ireland. It would not go no, down no. well. Um, so during all this violent period between 1919 and 1920, the IRA were very active. The British soldiers marched into a Gaelic football match and opened fire on the crowd. You might have seen that film Michael Collins, which is about this mm. whole period. About Michael Collins was, of course, one of the leaders of... Uh, uh, leaders of Ireland around this time. Well, this is where Sinn Féin split, isn't it? Yes. Well, this is coming up, um, actually. This is coming up oh, after okay. the petition. In the, in the film, Michael Collins, it's a tank that bursts into the ground and shoots. But in fact, march, soldiers just marched in and shot into the crowd. Mm. Uh, Ireland basically became ungovernable. Uh, in the local elections, Sinn Féin were winning everything and uh, the British government was just basically not recognised and lost all authority. Mm-hmm. So Lloyd George had a solution. What always works in these situations... What you do, John, is you get your ruler out yeah. and you get a crayon right. and you look at the map and you go, we'll just pop a line in there. No, Work for no, India. No. You close your eyes first, Angela. You close your eyes first. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot about the bit about closing your eyes. So yes. Israel, Palestine, India, Pakistan, just partition. It always works. It's always guaranteed it peace forever. Absolutely. Just draw a line. So so they so they came up with this sort of uh, uh, six counties out of the 32 counties of Ireland. Six of them, let's say, can remain within the British Isles if they choose. And of course, they did choose mm-hmm. as soon as they're given this choice. It's um, where the Ulster Unionists are, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. That's so they, um, it was presented to them as a temporary border that can you know be ratified by votes later. Uh, but it's the, the, mm-hmm. the border that we still have today between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic. Lots mm-hmm. of bizarre borders were imposed on Europe after the Great War. Um, mm. You know, Yugoslavia and, you know, um, the, the breakup of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is the only one that still survives. All the others were sorted yeah. out after 1989. So this this partition split the Republicans. You've got uh, Michael Collins saying it gives us the freedom to achieve freedom. And mm-hmm. Emmon de Valera going never, never, never and p- painting himself as a hardliner. So he sent, look, Collins, why don't you go and negotiate this big 
treacherous sellout. I'll, mm. I'll make you head of negotiating the big treacherous sellout and I'll be back here in Ireland. I can't go because yeah. I've got dentist and my mum. <laughs> I've got to pick up something from my mum from the cleaners. Got so, a letter from my mum. Because whoever yeah. does this, I mean, some of the IRA might feel quite murderous towards them. But anyway, you go and do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Paul Michael <laughs> Collins was sent off to do this negotiation, agreed to partition, was murdered in uh, mm. uh, down in County Cork near Clonakilty. No actual evidence that De Valera's men were connected. It's highly suggested in Neil Jordan's film. In the film. But mm. uh, there's no evidence of it. The Irish Free State was declared in 1922. Ireland was semi-free under King George, mm. and they all had to swear allegiance to the king, ha-ha. But uh-huh. um, mm. Lloyd George was forced from office in 1922 you know, because the Tories were not going to put up with him anymore. He was a Liberal Prime Minister under a Tory majority. So like Peel and Gladstone before him, he was kicked out because of the Irish problem. And no Liberal MP ever held office ever again. Yeah. Civil war breaks out between the pro and anti-treaty sides, which claim more deaths than the War of Independence. So this is your, yeah, your Michael Collins gang and your, well... Yeah, that's right. And and your De Valera... De Valera gang. And this is really Mm. um, the origins of uh, the modern Irish political parties. Well, I say modern, the ones Mm. still surviving ancient Irish political parties, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Mm. I was in a pub in Ireland once and I said to some local, what is the difference then between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil? And he goes, oh, that's easy. It's the difference between shit and shite. <laughs> Cynical politician. Um, but yeah, those divisions and what side your grandfather was on in the in the Civil War is still very much uh, defines Irish politics to this day. Mm. Ireland remained neutral in World War Two to the shock of many in Britain mm. who still don't get it and yeah. um, declared itself a republic in 1949. It could have been a completely different history, perhaps if Britain had responded to the 1916 rebellion differently, perhaps if, more importantly, if Gladstone's reforms had got through and not been blocked by the Tories at the time, or if Parnell had not been caught with Kitty O'Shea, history might have taken a very different turn. The Irish trachealer, the the, the green, white and gold, was flown for the first time at the post office. No one had seen that flag before they put it out there. It had always been the green flag with a harp on it. But uh, Ireland as a fiercely Republican nation was sort of formed in the cauldron of uh, 1916 and the, the post office. De Valera was determined that Ireland would be everything that Britain wasn't. So Britain was industrial, Ireland would be rural. Britain was Mm. Protestant, Ireland would be ultra-Catholic, you know. Um, Mm. Britain went to war with Germany, Ireland would be neutral. And that was always very much what what defined the the birth of the nation. And, of course, as we know, after 1949, when it was declared a republic, there was peace in the whole island of Ireland forevermore. Well, that's what's so great is yeah. that they, 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 the Irish never, you know, we, we, we never let history get in the way of friendships. <laughs> we will do a future episode on, on, uh, on the what troubles. happened next and on the troubles. And, uh, you know, we are a lighthearted podcast. And it's very difficult to be. We try to be. We try troubles. to be. I mean, what's interesting, four years ago, it was the centenary of the 1916 rising. And it was very mm. much plays down. It was not done as a big Republican, triumphalist, uh, anti-British uh, celebration because of mm. the peace that had been achieved in Northern Ireland they thought let's not do that again because they'd yeah. done that in 1966 when it was 50 years after the Easter Rising they did all sort of IRA march pasts and uh, celebrating they bombed and they, the Nelson statue in Dublin yeah the IRA blew up the uh, the, the Nelson's column that was in uh, uh, O'Connell Street I think it's in mm. and um it sort of gave credence to the IRA and was a factor in precipitating the troubles three years later in the north mm. so the Irish government 
this time round, in the more recent one, played down the sort of let's kill all the Brits attitude of it. I mean, the centenary was, what, April 2016. I wonder if, yes. had it been a few months later after a certain vote, whether they might Oh, have... my God, who knows? <laughs> who a slightly knows? different attitude to it. My uh, dad's cousins were in the Irish Republican Brotherhood. One of them edited and Black, the IRA newspaper. Um, one of them was sent to Russia to try and get support. Uh, during the Civil War, whereas my dad and his family were very much on the free state side, mm. you know, having been in the British Army and uh, ending up moving to Britain. So everyone in Ireland has got family stories to tell. It's a very small country, yeah. but it just tells you what a weird old thing history is. And I find it so incredible that, you know, we're not taught this stuff when it's so relevant on this so close on to home. and so close to home. And, yeah. you know, particularly when it comes to the troubles that we'll look at at a later date. Um, yeah. But we still, even at the time, weren't being taught about what the root of that was. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Um, I suppose with the moment, having written a history of Britain, I sort of stopped including Ireland after 1922 when they became a separate mm. country. But I did mm. try and uh, cover all of this. And it is fascinating. And it's a sort of, um, you know, it's incredibly complex, but it's, such, it's so close to home. But it's such a, in, it's so indicative of the arrogance of the English ruling classes and the way they mm. behaved towards the English people and the Irish people. You know, they, they just did whatever they wanted. And what I find, I mean, we're taught about the French Revolution, you know, yeah. that's because it's close to home, but yeah. not about yeah. the Easter Rising yeah. and Ireland. So. Yeah. I mean, of course, they were very, uh, they had a lot of support in America, the Irish. And uh, I do find it a bit irritating when I talk to uh, Irish Americans and their knowledge of Irish history is so sort of based on like one or two movies and <laughs> you know and they, they they declared themselves you know they, you, they they did used to be during the troubles would be um jars on the pub bath to f support the boys you know mm. and if you're giving money to <laughs> murderous gangsters in west belfast guys yeah. uh, just uh just find out a bit more before you start funding this yeah. um but no it's an incredible story uh a, a sort of a blood sacrifice that uh, had no chance of succeeding and somehow did uh poor patrick pierce and all the um the, the, the martyrs of 1916 who threw themselves at the British guns. Um, maybe they thought they weren't going to be executed, but uh, mm. they are now here as... Uh, Patrick Pierce was born in Pierce Street, which seems like a coincidence. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but these, uh, yeah, if you go to Dublin, you still see... Uh, you can still uh, see oh, the stations of, uh, named after the rebels yeah. and all sorts of yeah. yeah, Yeah. So uh, if you are Irish and you think we got lots of that wrong, you, you know, I'm sure you'll put me straight. Um, even if you're not Irish and you're a historian, you, you can put me straight. Sorry about the 800 years of uh, oppression of Ireland. I don't think it was your fault, John. I mean, I blame a lot on you as a white straight man. But yeah, I think I've, we'll, I've, we'll let me off, off this, this one. one. <laughs> all right. Ireland, well done for staying in the European Union. You taught us all a lesson. Yeah. And uh, can I, if, if there are any Irish men listening, can I marry you for your EU passport, please? Thank you. <laughs> I've got my Irish passport now, Angela. Oh, I've got show it sorted. Off. Yeah. That's it for this week's <laughs> We Are History. Uh, we have uh, explained the entirety of Irish history. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week we with will. Uh, a Victorian tale. Oh, yes. And, um, and maybe a guest. Ooh, Ooh that that's before. a little teaser. Uh, don't so, forget to follow us on Twitter at We Are History Pod. Um, tweet us if you're enjoying the shows. Uh, let us know if there's anything you want us to look at and uh, talk about. And also, don't forget to give us a little rate and review on the old iTunes. Um, and please, also, if you're enjoying the podcast, do tweet about it and share it with your friends yeah. and family and put it on your Facebook and Instagram or whatever it is you use. Because uh, we're word of mouth. We're sort of getting there. 
Yeah, so, and thank you for suggesting that, Laura Marcus. Uh, yes. Anyone else who's got suggestions, send them in. There's been some interesting ones coming in. We won't be able to do all of them, but uh, they, they mm. give us ideas. So Brilliant. thanks a lot for listening. We'll catch you next time. Bye.